Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So today I'm carrying on in the series I began last week on the family called Caring for the Clan. And uh, what we do every year is we do a whole month of talking about family. And this year I'm kind of broadening it out. I'm not just talking about your family. I'm talking about your clan and some of the things that go with that. And uh, I told you last week when it comes to the family and when it comes to individuals, we are identified on a bunch of different levels. Uh, number one, scripturally, it was was the, the nation and then the tribe and then the clan and and then the individual family. And we haven't talked a lot about clans in the past. And so we're kind of zeroing in, drilling down on that. And we discovered that the word clan appears in the Old Testament 224 times. And it's an important concept of how we can have our family much bigger than we are. Because what happened is the clans have, have decentralized and even families are fragmented and people find themselves distanced and estranged from their families. So last week I challenged you to draw the circle of your family bigger. So we're going to carry on with that thought. So there's this great story I love. This couple has had their Aunt Virginia living with them for 10 years. And she was a real piece of work. I mean, she was grumpy and nasty and demanding, ungrateful. And finally, after 10 years, she dies. And they're at the funeral. They finish the funeral. They're driving home. And the wife's sitting in the car. And she says, honey, I, I feel bad even saying this. But I don't think I could take even one more year with your Aunt Virginia. To which he said, my Aunt Virginia? I thought she was your Aunt Virginia. (laughs) That's pretty good, isn't it? And so today my message is entitled From Cradle to Grave. And we all know that that concept. Uh, You know, comedian uh, Dennis Miller, he observed this. He said, the left promises abortion rights and cradle to grave protection. So the trick is to make it to the cradle. And that's kind of interesting and kind of damning on some level. And what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at this whole responsibility of cradle to grave. So I'm going to tell you a little story from the book of Genesis, actually two stories, because Genesis is bookended with stories of brothers, two brothers at the beginning and 12 brothers at the end of the book of Genesis. Now, we all know about the first family in history, Adam and Eve. I like to remind people it was the first dysfunctional family in history. Eve had an eating disorder. Adam didn't wear the pants in the family, didn't wear any pants at all. And of course, talk about sibling rivalry. The first two brothers, Cain, kills his brother Abel. I mean, this is not a good start, people. And so then God shows up and he says, Cain, where's your brother? And do you remember what he says? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He asked God this question. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, interesting because God doesn't (laughs) answer that question because he's got other things to deal with, like a murder. Uh, But here's my question for you. Are you your brother's keeper? Does the Bible teach you if you're your brother's keeper? I mean, if it teaches anything, it teaches that. You go all the way from beginning to end, we find out we are a brother's keeper. Uh, It tells us again and again and again that we are responsible for one another, to love one another, to love your neighbor, to love your brothers in particular. No greater love does a man have than to lay down his life for his friend. We are our brother's keepers. Both our biological brothers and our, and our brothers in the Lord and our brothers as friends. No doubt about that. So, so this is, this is the, the concept that we learn at the beginning 
of the book of Genesis. You go to the end of the book of Genesis, and it's the story of the 12 brothers. And of course, I'm talking about the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 you know, tribes of Israel. And so they had their own sibling rivalry problem, didn't they? Remember Joseph? Now, they didn't kill Joseph, but they did sell him off as a slave to Egypt. You know what? These people are not treating their families very well. Do you agree with that? He sells them. They sell them off. Now, they were going to kill him, but they chose to sell him as a slave. So, so poor Joseph, he goes off to Egypt. He's a slave. And by the grace of God, because God's favor was upon him, he rises up to become the second ruler in Egypt under only the Pharaoh. And most of you know the story about the seven good years and the seven lean years. And of course, we have Joseph. He's administrating this program to stockpile grain so that they can get through the seven years. Now, uh, some distance away in the homeland, you have Jacob and his family and his 11 sons. And they're not doing so well because they're in the famine as well, but they didn't plan for it. So they come hat in hand. To Egypt, not knowing where Joseph is, not knowing that they're going to encounter their brother. But there he is, and I'm going to pick the story up in Genesis chapter 47, verse 11. Listen to this. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. In the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded, then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number of their families. And of course, the word there is clan. So what we find out, Joseph, who was sold off by his own brothers, he now takes care of not only his brother, not only his father, not only his mother, but the entire clan. And if you go back into Genesis chapter 46, it actually names and numbers who they are. I'll do the math for you and save you the trouble of counting. There was 70 people. 70 people showed up. And Joseph took care of every last one of his clan. He gave them lands and possessions. He gave them bread to eat. He cared for them from cradle to grave. And what he did was he proved that he was, in fact, his brother's keeper. So I'm going to give you a little history lesson. How many like my history lessons? How many you could do without them? Yeah, there's always a few hands that are going to go up, but you're getting the history lesson anyway, because I'm a bit of a history buff. So when we talk about Western civilization, there are three institutions that hold the whole thing up. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. These are the three pillars of Western civilization. This is not true in all other civilizations in other parts of the world, but it is true of the Western civilization. Western society is held up by these three institutions, the government, often called state, the family, and the church. And these three things, historically, for the last 2,000 years, have upgirded and upheld the society as we know it even today. And each one of these pillars has its own and specific role. And so government, or the state as we often call it, this is what the role would be. And I know this will be a bit libertarian, but I'm going to say it anyway. Their role would be this, the rule of law, a monetary policy, and national defense. 
Those would be the primary responsibles, particularly in a federal government like we have. And services are delivered at lower levels of provincial and municipal and city, etc. And the government, the overall government, has a much narrower role than it has today. And we're going to talk about that. Then on the other side of the equation, you have the church. And we always talk about the separation of church and state. And we have this other pillar called the church that we've had very much influencing Western civilization for 2,000 years. There's no doubt about it. We have divided all of history based on the birth of Christ, B.C. before Christ and A.D. after, right? And so we look at government, what is it, or sorry, at the church, and what is its role? Its role is to provide the spiritual framework for our society. It is the church that has taught right and wrong. It is the church that has helped us and reminded us to love God and to love our fellow man. It's the church that has taught us to forgive and to care for and to serve our fellow human beings. That's the role of the church in a society. And then, of course, there's the center pillar. I put it in the center. Because the family, in my opinion, is the most important of all of these. It, was, it predated both government and the church. And the family was the foundation. It was the bedrock in which God started all of humanity. And the role of family is so important and so vital. Because that's where values and character are developed. That is where people literally learn to love and to care for one another. Where they actually practice all these things of forgiveness and right and wrong. It's where they learn respect. It's where they learn honesty. And so there's three distinct roles. I hope you can see that picture. And what happens is when any one of these, any one of them gets out of their lane, when they start mixing up the roles, when they start trying to accomplish the role of one of the other institutions, the whole thing breaks down. And this is exactly what we have seen in our generation. I talked about it last week. I talked about the Quiet Revolution in Quebec and how the government, the provincial Quebec government, had gone and systematically eviscerated religion in Quebec. And took their influence away. And if you look at it today, like I said, they're marginalized, they're, they're irrelevant, and they have very successfully campaigned against the church to minimize its influence in the society. You look around Western nations around the world, and most of them are in that same category. You look at Europe, and you see the, the influence of the great cathedrals in the past and the Holy Roman Empire, it's all gone. It has all crumbled down. And then, of course, there's the role of the family, which is now being usurped, and it is now being undermined, and it is now being taken away from us. And we are not always aware of that. We don't realize that we have this, this sovereignty as a family. We have this responsibility as a family that we have been, and, and I'm gonna, I think we, we bear some blame in it, because we have expected governments to do things for us that the family ought to be doing. And we have elected governments that are making all kinds of promises that they can't possibly ever really fulfill like the family could. Now, I'm going to give you a historical example from this. I could pick on Canada or the U.S., and people will get mad because they get so particular and personal about their politics. So I'm going to talk about Great Britain. In 1945, Great Britain was in a lot of trouble. They had just gone through two world wars. They had suffered more casualties than all the other allied nations. And the thing that got most hurt in this was the family, primarily because there was literally millions of fathers, sons, and husbands that were killed in battle. And so all of a sudden, the family has been stripped of the male influence, stripped of the father, 
And, of course, they had lots of other problems. You know, Britain doesn't have a great track record of taking care of the poor, educating people, health care. All of those things were not universal, and they, they were not supplied. And we've all read, you know, books like Oliver Twist and Orphans Run in the Street and Pickpockets and all kinds of things. Those things were true, and you know a little bit of the history of Great Britain in that respect. So come 1945, you have Winston Churchill. He's the prime minister. And he's trying to deal with what do we do in the aftermath of not one, but two world wars. So there was a man by the name in that age of by the name of William Beveridge. And uh, William Beveridge was the director of the London School of Economics. And he came up with an idea, a proposal that came massively popular called the Beveridge Report. And here it is, full employment in a free society. And what he had done was he proposed completely revolutionizing government as it was and social policy as it was and taking care of things like universal health care and social security and unemployment and death benefits and all kinds of stuff. And it was very comprehensive. And that little booklet was the best-selling publication in England in 1945, they sold half a million copies of this. Everybody was reading it, and it was incredibly popular because this was the answer to all their problems. Now, it was Winston Churchill, in reference to this, he's making a comment on this, and he's looking at this, and he's a little bit tentative about it, and he uses this term, he coined this term, he said, this is a promise to care for, for people from cradle to grave. Now, as a conservative... Uh, He wasn't prepared to do that because he thought there was too much government intervention. And so even though he coined the term cradle to grave, he was not fully wholeheartedly endorsed some of it, but not all of it. Now, the Labor Party, on the other hand, the opposition party at that time, they went all in. And they were, there was an election in 1945. This was their campaign poster, demand the beverage plan. And if you look at it, It's right at the top, maternity grant, right at the bottom, funeral benefit. In other words, cradle to grave and everything in between. So the election comes, Churchill is defeated, the Labour Party wins in a landslide. Everybody wanted this. They all wanted it. They won more than 100 seats, more than the Conservatives. And it worked for a while, and people were happy. Finally, there was you know, access to health care and access to education and access to everything. The problem is, within five years, guess what the problem was? They could no longer pay for it. It was just too expensive. How do you take care of every single person's every single need? Where are you going to come? To, where's the money going to come from? So there's two things happen. Within five years, the social services had dropped by 25% in only five years. And the, the income tax rate had skyrocketed, are you ready for this, by 1950. You know how we have a marginal tax rate? You have the highest tax rate. They had the same thing. The highest tax rate in 1950 was 99 and a quarter percent. I, I don't know how good you are at math. That's almost all of it. And, uh, and of course, there are certain people that were, they were basically giving all of their money to the government. They had no choice. How are they going to support this social network? And so there was a group of people, they weren't very happy about it because all their money was going that way. Now, there's probably a bunch of Beatles fans. Any Beatles fans in the room here? Because they wrote a song about this. Actually, it was George Harrison. It was 1966, and he wrote the song Tax Man. There's, there's the, the cover of that. Tax Man by George Harrison. And in 1966, George Harrison was finally making money. They all were as Beatles. And his personal tax rate, are you ready for this? Was 95%. 
And so the song, Tax Man, is based on the fact that he was ma- making or, or paying 95%. And so the song goes like this. Uh, if, you, if it appears that 5% is too small, be thankful I don't take it all. Because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Now, of course, they sang it in their melodic, happy way that the Beatles sang everything. But I'll tell you something. He wasn't happy about it. And I think the British invasion of musicians in North America was so they could come here and pay taxes here. Instead of in England, where, where they were dying. And the, and the point I'm trying to make about this, and, and of course we're very grateful for, for things like universal health care and universal education. I'm not knocking any of those things. All I'm saying is this. You can't possibly take care of every single need for every single person from a centralized uh, position. You, you all get that, don't you? It, it's unaffordable. It's not practical. There's no way you're going to administrate it. And every nation that has gone into full socialism has failed. So you could look at Cuba. You could look at Venezuela. You could look at Albania. You could look at China. You could look at Russia. Every single one of those social experiments has not succeeded in human history. And so it's important for us to understand it just doesn't work when you centralize everything. I like to put it this way. How many of you have heard my, my two cows political theory? Well, well, it goes like this if you haven't heard it. So in socialism, you have two cows. The government takes one and gives it to your lazy neighbor. Uh, communism, you have two cows. Government takes both gives you some milk. In uh, fascism, you have two cows. The government takes both and sells you some milk. In a bureaucracy, you have two cows, the government takes both, they shoot one, milk the other, and throw away the milk. In Nazism, you have two cows, government takes both, and shoots you. In capitalism, you have two cows, you sell one, and buy a bull, right? So so there's my little political theory for you in two cows, you'll never forget that. So we, we look at this failed experiment uh, politically throughout the world, and you can disagree or agree. I don't care. It doesn't matter. It's the truth. And here's the thing I want you to see on the other side of the equation, because we have state that has gone too far and overreached too far. And on the other side, you have the church that tried the same thing. In Acts chapter 2, there was this great centralization. I'm going to read you the story. Most of you will remember it. It's Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 44, and this is what it says. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as everyone had need. And you've all read the story in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. They sold their farms, they sold their businesses, they sold their houses. Uh, They went and laid the money at the feet of the apostles. And then the apostles started distributing it to each one as they had need. And there are people, even today, Hutterite colonies and others, that think this is the model for Christian people, this centralization, where we all have one pot. Now here's what you need to understand about this. Why would these Christians sell their farms and sell their houses, and sell their goods, and give it to the church, because how are they going to possibly make money in the future if they sold their farm and gave the money to the church? And the answer is this. They believed the return of Christ was imminent. When Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly, they thought quickly meant quickly. They thought it meant days or weeks, not decades, not centuries. We're 2,000 years later, and the quickly thing hasn't happened. You think, Jesus, what are you doing, man? 2,000 years, you said I'd come quickly. 
Well, we happen to know that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. No idea what that means. All I know is that the come quickly has not come quickly. And so here's what happened, just so you know. Uh, the whole experiment broke down. And I call it an experiment because it never happened before and it never happened again in history, just so you know that. This was the only place in Scripture. It's not commanding us to do this, and it didn't work. Because two years later, by Acts chapter 6, they're in a mess, and people aren't getting their daily rations, and people are murmuring, and people are complaining. And the thing only lasted about two years because, guess what? Jesus didn't return. And don't miss the fact that the whole thing was voluntary. Like, it, it wasn't commanded. They did this on their own. They, they thought Jesus was coming, so that's what they do, do. The point was it didn't work because centralization of taking care of everybody's needs does not work. Now, here's a simple question. I know you all, all know the answer. So if you were going to care for someone or you were going to deliver services to a group of people, who would be the most efficient and the most effective group of people to deliver those services? The one closest to the need or the people furthest away from the need? It's the closest. It's a simple thing. So I'll give you an illustration of that. So in Winnipeg, we got all snow in the winter. And the streets have to be cleared. Who do you want to be responsible for clearing your streets? The city of Winnipeg or the federal government in Ottawa? Who do you want? <laughs> you, you want the city to clean the streets because they're the ones closest to the need. They see the problem. Do you really want Prime Minister Trudeau being responsible for clearing the streets of Winnipeg? He can't even clear the streets of Ottawa. (laughs) You know, here's, here's here's the thing we know. You cannot stand at a distance and insult people and threaten people and end, expect to end a conflict. Nobody has ever succeeded in doing that in human history. All you have to do is look at Goliath. It didn't work for Goliath. It's not going to work for our government. So you have this group of truckers, and I, I don't want to get into this too far, but I'm going anyway just for fun. You've got this group of people and nobody from the government. Nobody from the government has gone and talked to them. There's something wrong with that. You can't just insult them from the distance. How do you, how do you deal with people? You go talk to people. You negotiate with people. You say, well, you know, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Maybe that's their thinking. They're not terrorists. They're truckers. They're not shooting machine guns in the air. They're honking their horns. <laughs> Boy, a bunch of you are talking with me. I probably made a few people mad. But, but here's the point I'm trying to make here is that what the pandemic has done is it has allowed governments to go into a level of complete overreach in our world. And what they have done is they have taken on a role that doesn't belong them. They've made a bunch of, they've made a bunch of decisions and a lot of things without parliamentary debate, without votes, without legislative consultation, without consulting with the population. They have treated us like a bunch of children. And I'll tell you, if there's one group that has suffered through this thing, it's been the family. Because we have been stripped of our authority and our sovereignty, and we can't even make self-determined decisions on our own anymore. And that's what's wrong with this thing. You know, I got, I got a loud crowd here. And, and uh, my point is, what we have to do is figure out, how do we reclaim it? Now, maybe we can't change government policy, but you know what we can do? We can start living the way that we were meant to be living. God has designed us, and we've got to stop expecting government to do everything for us, for the church to do everything for us. The job of the family is to take care of their family from cradle to grave. 
So I'm going to take the last few minutes here, and I'm going to give you a, a little romp through the life of Jesus in a little bit different. See, when we look at the Gospels, we see... You know, we see the, the message of the gospel. We see Jesus teaching. We see uh, the important thing of the plan of redemption. But there are some very human moments in Jesus' life. And what's fascinating to me is that the Bible, the gospels in particular, cover the life of Jesus literally from cradle to grave, right? It, it describes the cradle. We know what the cradle was. It was a manger. It was a feed trough in that stable. We know what his cradle looked like. And we know what his tomb looked like. At the end of his life, he was buried in a tomb hewn out of the rock with a great stone put in front of it. So we have this, these moments in Jesus' life, very human moments, that aren't about the gospel and they're not about his teaching. They're just human moments. And I'm going to go relatively quickly through four of them and just point out to you his family, his family life and the dynamic there and maybe some things we can learn from this. So here's the four moments in, in the Gospels, the cradle, the teenager, the wedding and the grave. So the whole thing starts with the, the cradle. We know that we have Mary and Joseph. Uh, she's pregnant. There's a census has been called by, by Caesar and they have to go to Bethlehem. And here's what it appears to to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see the clan with them. Where's the rest of their family? I see them traveling to Bethlehem. Maybe the rest of the family had to go somewhere else. I don't know. And anyway, they end up in in Bethlehem. There's no room in the inn. They have no family there, clearly. So they end up in this stable. The baby is born in this stable, as you know, and we laid in the manger, the cradle. And then we have this terrible situation when Herod, the king, finds out that there's a newborn king then he puts out a hit on the kid, right? And not only him, on every male child under the age of two will be executed, murdered. I mean, such a treacherous thing. So now Mary and Joseph have a real problem. They're going to have to deal with this situation, and they flee to Egypt. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought of the price they paid to flee to Egypt. They would have given up everything. They didn't go back to Nazareth, so that means they gave up their family, they gave up their clan, they gave up, they're probably at home, they gave up their home. Joseph gave up his career, he gave up his job, and off they went for two years to Egypt. You say, how did he afford to do that? Well, remember some friends dropped by? We call them the wise men, and they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. It wasn't to make them fat and happy and rich. It was to deal with the fact God had provided a provision for them for them when they went away to Egypt, and the gold obviously did that. So here's the point I'm trying to make. When it comes to family, when it comes to the cradle, when it comes to newborns, there is a tremendous sacrifice that you have to make to bring kids into this world. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Is there anything more needy in this world than a newborn? I'm going to say this sensitively, but they're so useless. I mean, they, I mean the, the newborn comes into the world and can't do anything. It just lies there. It can't do anything. It doesn't know how to eat. It doesn't know how, I'm barely, it doesn't know how to walk. It doesn't know how to talk. It can't move. It can't even hold its head up. Just head flopping around like this. You got you to gotta carry it around like it's a half million dollar Stradivarius violin. Because if you hold it wrong, it's going to break and die. And you, it doesn't go on like that for days. It goes on like that for months. You think, when is this kid going to learn how to do anything? It eats, it poops, and it cries. And, you, you know, they're cute as a button, but so hopeless. I mean, the amount of effort you have. Is there any creature on this planet 
that is as much trouble as a human baby? I don't think so. So let me tell you this story. So, so this past August, our daughter had her th- third child, our third grandchild, a little baby girl, beautiful, pretty, wonderful, useless, can't do anything, <laughs> just lies there. We hold its head up. And this goes on for months, you know, holding it like, you know, don't drop it. So the same week, the very same week, a deer, a doe, a deer, a female deer has a baby in our backyard, has a fawn. And this, this, this deer is just standing there, chewing its cud, and all of a sudden out of the backside, shoots a fawn, drops it three feet from its butt, lands right on his head. Sends it right out the butt, landing on its head. And then, the, you know what the, then the, what the doe did? You know what she did next? She left. She went out for lunch. She just gave him birth. She was hungry, went out for lunch, probably met some other gals, some other does. They're sitting around talking. Oh, the fawn's so beautiful, but these stretch marks, I don't know if I'll ever get rid of them. Oh, yeah, who knows what they're talking about? So an hour later, it's left at there, defenseless by itself. An hour later, it shows up and says, are you still lying there? No joke. Kicks the fawn, kicks it, and says, get up on your feet and act like a deer or a wolf is going to eat you. It let it lie around for an hour before it told it to spring into action. Meanwhile, we're carrying babies around for a year before they figure out how to walk, right? And so you're looking at this story, you think, it's, it's just crazy that there is such a demand and such a sacrifice. Now, here's, here's my big question. It's so obvious. Given how fragile and how needy human babies are, who do you think in this whole world would be the best and most equipped person to take care of them? They're parents. They're parents. And the fact that we try to consider other ways that other organizations can take, and we, we hear things like national daycare programs, and you know, that's wonderful, it's noble, it sounds so good, but at the end of the day, who do you really want raising that child? Who do you really want spending those first informative years with that child? Do you know that a child learns more in the first six years of its life than the rest of its life put together? Do you know it learns all of these things? Of course it learns how to walk and talk and, and its moral foundation is established. Do you know that a child can learn in the first six years to speak four languages? How long would it take you to learn four languages? Six Hundred years is how, how long it would take most of us, right? And these babies grow up, and, they, and even though they start slow, the amount of information they can take. And it was Rudyard Kipling, you all know Kipling, and he said this. He said, give me the first six years of a child's life, and you can have the rest. What was he saying? This is the most formative and important time. And there's really no one else that should be raising that child because nobody is going to love that children like you are. And I'm not telling you what to do about all these you know, things and struggles and jobs and all that. I'm just giving you a principle here today. It is so vital. And you know, it's interesting that Kipling said this as a male, how important it was to parent children. And one of the things I've seen, and I think it's kind of encouraging, is I see more young men getting involved in their children's lives than I've ever seen before. When I grew up, it was only moms. The fathers didn't do anything. When we had kids, I was involved, but kind of barely, only because my wife made me. And I look at this new generation of men. I'll give you this little story. So this week, uh, we have the, the three grandkids, and we took the two oldest to this place called Hide and Seek. And it's a, uh, an indoor park for kids 
Like you've never seen before. We didn't have it when we were kids. I mean, it's got slides, huge slides and climbing structures and mountains and, and things you slide on. It's got trampolines. It's fantastic. It's a whole building full of these fantastic things. And there's all these parents with their kids there and one set of grandparents with their kids. And, uh, and I'm looking around and one of the things I noticed was that half of the parents that were there with their kids were men. And there were, they were these a bunch of 30-year-old fathers with skin-tight T-shirts and gym rat biceps. I fit right in, no joke. Like it was, and, and I'm looking around, I was so encouraged by this that these, these fathers were into it. So then Kathy and I split up. She took the four-year-old and I took the, the, the two-year-old. Two hours with the two-year-old in this play structure. It was great on one hand, but on another hand, I thought, this reminds me of going out with your, a drunk little friend, right? I mean, they slur when they talk. They stagger when they walk. They file down. You pick them up. They vomit on you and pee their pants. It's exactly like hanging out with a little drunk. And <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> So the first thing that we look at is the importance of the cradle. The second thing is we have the teenager. And Jesus' teenage season is actually talked about in, in a very brief way. Now, he wasn't a teenager. He was only 12 years old. But he was at that stage where a Jewish boy becomes a man. Today, they call it the bar mitzvah. And he was taken to the uh, temple in Jerusalem. <laughs> and uh, when they left, when the feast in Jerusalem was over, they were going home, heading back to Nazareth. And they'd forgot something. Who remembers what they forgot? Jesus, they forgot their son at the temple. Now, does anybody remember how long it was before they noticed? It it was a whole day's journey. They had traveled a whole day and (laughs) realized that they forgot Jesus in Jerusalem. He was still in the temple. We know that because we read the story. They didn't know where he was. They're freaking out. You You know why? They thought he was with the clan. And they thought he was, they presumed he was with relatives. He wasn't with relatives. So they turn around and they go back. And then when they got back to the, to the temple, uh, it had been three days they had been gone. They lost the kid, the teenager, for three days. And when, when they get there, he's sitting calmly, having a conversation with the priests and outsmarting them, whatever. And they're kind of wigging out on him, you know, like, what are you doing? Like, it's his fault. You, I don't think this is Mary and Joseph's finest moment. That's what I'm saying. This was their home alone moment, right? You've all seen the movie? I mean, how do you leave Macaulay Culkin at home while you go on Christmas vacation to Europe? I mean, who does that? And I mean, imagine Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern showing up to harass them and the little kid outsmarting them. And the worst thing is about this story is it happened again. Home Alone 2, lost in New York. The same two goofballs, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern. Are you kidding me? I heard it was a true story. <laughs> anyway, here's the most important thing I want to say about these teenage years. Don't miss this. Mary and Joseph took their teenager to church. Now, they didn't do a good job with everything else, but at least they took him, right? So that's the first thing to remember. So we have the cradle, we have the teenager, we have the wedding. Jesus' wedding? No, not Jesus' wedding. I'm talking about the wedding in Cana. And so you remember what happened was they ran out of wine. Right? They ran out of wine. And apparently, Mary is really uptight about the fact that they've run out of wine, which can only mean one of two things. Either she was a lush and needed another drink, or maybe, and I think this is the better answer, I think she was part of the family. I think it was a family wedding. 
I think what was going on there. And she was somehow intimately involved in this wedding. And uh, I, I joked about this a couple of months ago. I got some real good feedback on it. I joked that the reason they ran out of, out of, out of wine was because Jesus brought his 12 uninvited friends and they drank it all. And I had some angry viewer write me a letter and say, Pastor Mark, don't you even read your Bible? It says, then the disciples were invited. And the answer to that is, of course, they were invited. This is a clan wedding. It was a family wedding. So that meant Jesus could bring his friends. The invitation probably said plus one, not plus 12. But nevertheless, he brings all 12 of his friends because they were, if they were his friends, they were part of the family. That's how the clan worked. So, of course, they were invited. I get that. Now, here, here's the point I want to make. So they've run out of wedding, wine rather. Mary, <laughs> we get out on this. And I just want to pause for just a moment. Before I go any further, did you notice that Joseph is not in this scene? And in fact, Joseph is in no scenes after that. And that's right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And most scholars believe that Joseph died sometime between Jesus' age 12 and age 30. Somewhere in between. We don't know exactly know where. It doesn't actually tell us in scripture. All we know is that he's not there and there's no sign of him anywhere. And here's what you need to know is that Mary, Jesus' mother ended up as a single mother. We never think of it in those terms, but it was absolutely true. And so there she is, and she's wigging out, and and Jesus does this miracle, and he turns the water into wine. And then theologians have been scratching their heads on this, and they said, of all the miracles that he could have done as his first miracle, why did he turn water into wine? And the simple answer is, his mother told him to. That's why. And I'm not joking about this. You go read the story. She wanted him to do something about it. He did something about it. And here's the point I'm making on this. I don't care how old your kids are. You're always their parent. And he was 30 years old and still getting bossed around by his mom. I'm in my 60s and still get bossed around by my mom. (laughs) And you know my mom. (laughs) And so so we we have the cradle. We have the teenager. We have the wedding. Last and final thing is the grave. Let me begin this part with a little question similar to the question I asked you a moment ago. I said, who would be the best equipped to take care of a newborn? You're going to hate this question. If you had an aged parent who was infirm and needed help, who do you think on this planet would be the most best equipped person to take care of that parent? The answer is, and I know you don't want to say it, it's you. It's you. And in a world that, that you know, values their empty nest syndrome and being able to do things and travel and whatever, and we, we've pretty much expected the government to take care of that. We want, we want homes and care homes and all kinds of things. And, and, I, and, and again, I'm not criticizing anybody here. I'm just saying, who would be the best person? And the best person would probably be us to be involved in some significant and intimate way. And I can tell you all kinds of horror stories about where it hasn't happened. But I want to finish with one story, and it's the story of Jesus. So we have Jesus in his last moment, his his grave moment of his life. And he's hanging on the cross, and he's just bore the sin of all mankind. He's been punished. He's uh, been violated. He's naked. He's hanging there for the sin of mankind. And in that moment, that very poignant moment, there's four people present, and they're named. And the first person was John, who claims he's the favorite apostle. There's John. There was Mary Magdalene. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus. And are you ready for this? 
And there was Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister, also named Mary. Go read it for yourself. It's John 19. It's John, Mary, Mary, and Mary. Apparently, there were not very many good names for women in the first century, and so they just called them all Mary. And, and it's true, they've done historical research on this, 25% of all women in Jesus' day were named Mary. And it was such a good name, they named two of their daughters Mary. How confusing is that? Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm Larry, and this is my brother Daryl, my other brother Daryl. I mean, when you get a good name, you go with it. It's from the New Heart Show people. Work with me. So, thank you. Thank you. There's always somebody that gets me, and I appreciate that. So, so here's what I want you to see. You're visualizing the scene. You see Jesus hanging on the cross. It's his last moment. What would you be thinking about? What would you be thinking about in that moment? And Jesus looks down. He sees John. He sees his mother. And he says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And looks to John. And then to John, he says, Behold your mother. And it says, from that hour, John took Mary to his home. You catching this? In the last moment of his life, he cared for his aging mother and made sure there was a son from his clan, from his chosen family, from his extended circle of his family to take care of his mother. It is such an extraordinary moment in the life of Jesus. It's so personal and it's so family. And we look at that and we recognize this simple truth. There is no one in this world that can care for one another from cradle to grave better than the family. Let's stand together. I want to ask you all to close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment like we always do. Because what I want to do is if you have not become a member of the family of God, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And I'm not going to call you out or single you out or call you to say anything publicly. But when you look at the gospel, when we look at the Bible, God is the father. Jesus is the son. We're the brothers and sisters. It sounds an awful lot like a family to me. And what has happened is that when Jesus died on that cross, like I just described, he took care of his mother, but he also took care of every single one of you. And he's inviting you into his family. And if you're here today and you've never made that decision to be a follower of Christ, to become part of the family of Christ, if, you've, if you're not sure if you were to die tonight, if you go to heaven, I'm talking to you. And with every head bowed, with every eye closed, if you'd like to make that decision today, to be a follower of Jesus. Now, I'm not asking you if you've been to church or been baptized as an infant. I'm asking you this. Have you had the definitive moment where you've said yes to Jesus and joined his family? And if you have not and would like to, nobody's looking around, I want you to just slip up your hand. Just take a moment so I can see your hand. And once I've seen your hand, you can put it down again. Just take that moment. Thank you. All right. Super. All right. You can put your hands down. Uh, I said I wouldn't single anybody out. So let's all just pray this together, shall we? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. That you died for my sin, rose again on the third day, and forever live to be my Lord. I accept the Lordship of Christ, and just as important, the invitation to be part of the family. And today I'm a child of God, a member of the family of God, and this is a new day. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's give the Lord a big shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.